Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. You'll have this memorized by the time we're done. Repetition. Second Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for an opportunity to learn, to make effort because of the grace that you have showed to us and the love you have given to us. So may we be directed this morning, helped, encouraged, exhorted, prodded. May your word rightly divide our hearts this morning. And may we respond in the way that you direct us to. And we ask this in Jesus' name, your name, amen. So if you're new, we're doing a series called King Me, where we're kind of looking at living our eschatological authenticity. I'm going to repeat that. Looking at living eschatologically authentic lives. That's a fancy word for simply living what will be. So we looked at Revelation 22, a bunch of places, but Revelation 22, 4 says this that we will rule and reign with King Jesus forever. So that's our goal. That's where we're headed. So if that's what we're going to be, why don't we start walking and living that way right now? Why wait? So this series is that kind of idea. What do we do now? And we've been looking at a, a list of vocabulary right here in first, Second Peter chapter 1. And I think that these words have kind of lost the usage today. So we're just kind of going through, hey, look at these words. Are we adding these things? Because we're supposed to be increasing in them. And when we do, I love verse eight. If these are yours and they're increasing, you're not staying still, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. They help you flourish in this life and in the one to come. 
When I started looking at this series, then I went down this list. The one that I did not want to do, guess what it was? The one we're doing today. After knowledge, it says, and to knowledge with self-control. In fact, I tried to get James Dennis to do it today. And he said, no, you can do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. The reason is it's just kind of like, uh, self-control. I don't want self-control. I kind of like the way I am. But I'll tell you, the more I've looked at it and thought about it, the more I think this is the number one thing that we need. Because just a week ago, on Black Friday, a couple of hundred miles from here in Reno, or whatever it is, 500 miles, what's the difference? In Reno, there was a guy who was murdered over a parking spot. You guys read that story, right? It's just ridiculous. I'm not even talking about the big screen TV yet. They're in the parking lot over a parking spot. What is that? That is a lack of self-control. Well, come on, Matt. I'm not going to kill somebody over a parking spot. This isn't my problem. Let me tell you why self-control is so important. I'll give you just two reasons. The first one is this. It helps you be successful. So there's a book that it's a bestseller by the New York, on the New York Times list. It's called Willpower. Fascinating read if you want to get it. The authors say this, quote, I'm quoting. There are two qualities that correlate with success. One of them is intelligence and the other is self-control. And so far, researchers haven't figured out what to do about intelligence. They don't know how to make us smarter, but they have rediscovered how to improve self-control, end quote. Two things that will determine our success or our flourishing, intelligence and self-control. The one that kind of is out of our ability is intelligence, but the one that we can, we can improve is self-control. One of the authors, Roy Bauermeister, he's a professor, he says this, those that learn self-control are more attractive, have better health, live longer lives, have lower crime rates, longer marriages. It is one of the greatest influences on you and your well-being, more than intelligence, education, or birth status. Self-control leads to success. But secondly, I would say this. Without self-control, there is no society. You can't have society without self-control. And I think that, and we looked at this, in Genesis 1, God creates humanity very different than the animal kingdom, and he looks at humans and he says, you guys are my image bearers. I've created you to reflect me, that we have this capacity that no, one, no other created thing does. And God, the Bible tells us this over and over, is long-suffering. Isn't long-suffering a kind of self-control? Like, I'm going to put up with something patiently. I'm going to allow it. I'm going to wait for it. It's like a kind of self-control. So the, the, the very creative order that I think we've been created in says self-control matters. We're a different kind of society. We're not like animals. Animals don't have self-control, do they? Imagine for a second the world that we live in, the city we lived in had no self-control, that we were the animal kingdom. How much different would it be? Because they don't have self-control. I'll give you maybe my best example. Um, a couple of years ago, it's quite a few in fact, 
Uh, I was studying in my little study, and uh, my wife sent me a text and said, hey, it's when I had a phone, lunch is ready. So I finished up what I was doing, left my study, and I was walking into the house, but um, my wife didn't know I was in the house yet. And it was this beautiful sunny day, and so my kids were carrying their food from the, the lunch counter outside to eat in the patio, and the door was open. And at that time, we had a golden retriever named Chloe, who was an outside dog, but she lacked self-control. So she smelt the food on the inside, and she made a beeline through the door and came inside. And so I'm walking in, and I hear one of my children say, oh, yuck, Chloe just licked one of the sandwiches. Lack of self-control. And then my beautiful, wonderful wife, I hear her respond, oh, don't worry about it. That one's dad's. <laughs> to which I was in the room. And I said, sweetie, what's up with that? And I was so like upset about that, that fact that she's like, it's dad's, that I completely forgotten I ate the sandwiches, which is the worst part, right? That's the animal world, right? So imagine you leave today and you go to a restaurant and your waiter acts like a dog. And he shows up at your table eating your salad and licking your steak. What would you think about that? Well, society works. It functions because there is self-control. I think it's most important. But you know what? I think it's one of our greatest weaknesses. So there's a guy who did a study. He's the University of Pennsylvania. His name is Martin Siegelman. He interviewed, listen to this number, he interviewed 2 million people. That's unbelievable. So remember our election cycle? Who can forget it? Seems to keep haunting us. Uh, they would do these surveys and figure out like who's going to win the election based on like two or 3,000 people, right? Well, we interviewed 2,000 and we think that, you know, this person's going to get this percent and that person's going to get that percent. Now they were all wrong, but that's how they got their number. It was two or 3,000 people, 2 million. And so he, his survey was this. He had 24 characteristics, traits, and he asked people to arrange them in what they're best at and what they're worst at. Guess which one came in number 24? Self-control. So you hear stuff like that, and, and then there's this tendency in us to kind of say, like, well, I can't do it, man. I'm always going to succumb to this thing. I'm always going to be addicted to drugs. I'll never be able to get over pornography. I'll never, whatever it is. Like, I'm always going to be this. So there's this tendency then to say, well, I can never change. I can't control myself. But it's a lie. We're deceiving ourselves. And I'll prove it to you. Have you ever been in a very heated discussion with somebody? Maybe it's your boyfriend, maybe it's your girlfriend, uh, maybe it's a good friend, maybe it's a spouse. So you and your spouse are having this discussion and I don't know how hot you get, but you're at 100%. The tea kettle is whistling. Both of you are 100%, right? Then all of a sudden, the phone rings. How do you answer the phone? Yeah, right? Hello. Oh, yeah. So good to see. Oh, oh no. She's right here. Hold on a second. Grab that phone. Me and you. Right? <laughs> what was that just called? Self-control. You brought it down instantly, answered the phone just like normal, but we all say we can't do it. Oh, yes, we can. It's we don't want to do it. Ultimately, we don't want to do it. 
So what we've been doing in this series, instead of like trying to do like a systematic theology on self-control, we've been trying to look at examples because I personally learn a lot more from somebody's story than I do from a lot of facts. So we've looked at Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and we've looked at Paul and we've looked at Joseph. And today, our example of self-control is this really passionate guy named David. He's our example. Because I can have a lot of passion myself. And here's what I found about passion. Passion is like a locomotive that once it gets started, my goodness, it's hard to stop. And David is kind of that kind of guy. He has a lot of like passion in him. And what we see in David, we're just gonna look at three stories of David. Because I think what you see is you first see just his human side, what we all have, lack of self-control. Then there's this really hopeful chapter where David seems to change. And then lastly, we see this, what I call the hazard stage, where all of a sudden, everything that he had worked on crumbles. Okay, so turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, right now, David is not king. In fact, he's a rebel hated by the king at that time, Saul. And Saul's trying to get him. So this is where we pick it up. So he's not king yet. I personally believe he couldn't be king yet, that there was some work that needed to happen in Paul, or in David, excuse me, that would then enable him to become king. So here's his human side. Chapter 25, beginning with, then David rose, end of verse one, and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. There's half the marriages I deal with right there. The woman was beautiful <laughs> and discerning, and the man was harsh and badly behaved. <laughs> and he was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Here's what happens. David moves to a new spot. In this new spot, there's a rich dude with a lot of cash. He's got a lot of sheep. So David is there with his 600 men. He's the new guy in the block. But while he's there, he doesn't steal anything from these guys. He doesn't harass them. He doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. And just by the fact that he's got 600 men there, probably is a deterrent to other people coming in there and trying to steal Nabal's stuff. So then he goes to Nabal and is like, look, we didn't steal anything from you. And we're hungry now. 
Can we have something to eat? Would you give us something to eat? You ever have a neighbor that does that to you? Like you've lived there for decades and then they move in and they start thinking, look at all that I've done for this neighborhood. You're like, really? I've been doing this for 20 years, buddy. It's kind of like that. So David's a new kid and he's like, look what I've been doing in this neighborhood. Come on, help a boy out. Well, how does Nabal respond? Verse nine. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal, who was in, in the name of David. And they waited and Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. You're in rebellion to my king right now, David, King Saul. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? What does Nabal say? No way, man. I'm not doing that. I'm not taking food off of my plate from my people and giving it to you. You're a rebel. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to do that. You're not going to bully me, David. Right? Now, I can look at these two sides kind of logically and, and see both sides of it. But do you know that people rarely do that? Both sides believe they're right, right? Abel thinks he's right. David thinks he's right. That's most conflicts. They say in conflicts, people end up usually one or two kind of people. Either they're skunks or they're turtles, right? Skunks explode and make a big stink. Turtles shell up and just kind of shuffle away. Seems so often that skunks marry turtles, don't they? I've done some marriage counseling where it's both skunks. It's, it stinks to do that kind of marriage counseling, right? So you've got this, this okay, what's David gonna do? You got a conflict here. There are both sides of the story. What's he gonna do? Is he a turtle or a skunk? Verse 12. So David's young man turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every one of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. What's he going to do? I'm fighting. This is war. I'm going to go up there and tear it up, okay? So to make a long story short, Abigail, his wife, hears about what had happened, she loads up these donkeys with a ton of food, goes out, meets David with his 400 men that are coming now to destroy Nabal and all of his men. And she's a peacemaker. And she calms David down. And here's David's response. Skip to verse 32. And David said to Abigail, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt. I was going to make a huge mistake. This is going to be Reno all over again, or this is going to be Reno before Reno. <laughs> and working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there would not have been left to Nabal as much as one male." I was going to kill everybody. I was going to make a massive, massive mistake. A mistake that probably would have kept him from ever becoming king. Massive mistake. So 
Abigail, this beautiful woman, intercedes, stops him from making the mistake, this mistake, and he doesn't. But it's a rash, crazy, out of control David right here, is it not? You ever felt like David? Conflict arises, something happens, temptation, whatever it is, and you react incorrectly, rashly, and there is no Abigail to stop you, and you make a massive mistake? Here's one of the most disturbing statistics I read on this, that um, half of murders happen between family members. Do you know that? That's crazy to me. Why is that? Because of this pent up kind of passion, this out of controlness, this lack of self-control. Things like this happen all the time. And they say the biggest triggers are fear, frustration, and hurt or pain that those are the things that trigger us into these, these bouts of no self-control and just explosions, fear, frustration, and pain. Moms, you know this. What's frustrating to you as a mom? When you want to have this goal in your mind, I'm gonna get all my kids in bed and asleep by 8.30, Right? And so you start moving that direction and you got to start at like what? Four in the morning in order to get them in bed by that time. So you've just said, your, your whole day is geared around, I want the kids in bed by 8.30 and teeth are brushed and they're snuggled into their pajamas and you've read them a story and you've prayed for them and you've gotten them a drink of water and you've kissed them goodnight and you turn off the light and you walk out the door. What is the most frustrating sound in the world? The voice of your three-year-old, Right? Mommy, sing me another song. No. Mommy, I'm thirsty. You're not a camel. I've already given you enough. Right? Mommy, read me another book. No. Mommy, I got to go potty. Go in your pants. I don't care. <laughs> right? That's it. It's frustrating. Just, ah. Oh. My, my kids are professional sleep procrastinators. I don't understand why it is. Like, I love to go to sleep. That's like, ah, finally. Like they've been doing it to me now for 16 years. I'll give you a story about how good they are. So my three-year-old, who's now 16, when she was three, uh, Carissa, uh, it was my job. I had put her to bed. I had read to her. I had prayed with her. I had kissed her. I had tucked her in. And she started this thing where she started asking these questions. You know, they said, um, um, daddy, daddy. Um, and she's like looking around the room. Um, daddy, why does that light turn on? Listen, go to bed. And then she did this to me. She goes, Daddy, would you tell me about Jesus? <laughs> yeah. And I was up. I was just like, I'm, no, I'm not going to tell you about Jesus. Then she said this to me, Daddy, you never tell me about Jesus. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? <laughs> okay, propitiation, sanctification. She was asleep in like five seconds. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I get that frustration that just, oh, it's 8.30, go to bed, right? We're all in this human spot where things, triggers hit us and we explode and there's big time mistakes. And sometimes, a lot of times there is no Abigail and, and the results are horrific. Well, David changes. Flip forward with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Here's what I believe makes David king, because this becomes the DNA of David from this point forward. Verse one, chapter 30. 
Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid over the Negev against Ziklag, and they'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. That's his hometown. And they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. When I read the story of David, this is the most stressful event that ever happens to him in his life. Is there pain? Oh, unbelievable amount of pain here. He doesn't know what's happened to his wife and kids. They could be dead for all he knows. Um, is he frustrated? Okay, these men that had come to him, these 600 men had come to them and if you know David's story, they were distressed, they were in debt, they, they, were the, they were the nobodies of the world. And David had poured into them and mentored them and created in them this kind of metal, like he loved these men and had trained them, and now they want to kill him. How frustrating is that? Big time. Is he afraid? How could you not be afraid in this situation? Everything that I have, everything that I think defines me, is gone now. My wife, my kids, my cash, my position, it's, it's gone. The, the most stressful place in David's life. If you're going to lose it, here'd be the place to lose it. But what does he do? Look at end of verse six. But there's weeping, there's blame, there's all these others' reactions. What does David do? But David strengthened himself in Yahweh his God, and David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me an ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of Yahweh, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue. Is this different than chapter 25? Oh, massively different. Not going off half cocked, not freaking out. It says he strengthened himself in the Lord. What does that mean? I think personally it's conjecture that maybe he went and sang a song. Why do I think that? Because he wrote half of the book of Psalms. So maybe he just, I'm getting out of here. I'm just going to go sing. I'm, I'm just, I got to get out of here. We know, he did, we know though he did this. He grabbed a priest, this guy named Abiathar, a, a guy that was godly a guy that had the same perspective as him, a guy whose moral compass would have been the right kind of moral compass. Abiathar, come here. He got a community. He got somebody with him that he could talk to, that he can discuss, like, what should we do here? He got somebody next to him. You know how important that is? There's a guy, he's been in this church a long time. He's a re I consider him a really good friend, a guy I talk to. He's 79 years old. He told me this once, and I've never forgot it. He said, Matt, you know the only reason why I never got sucked into pornography? I said, no, tell me. He goes, I have this good friend. He told me who this good friend was. And he said, I never want to disappoint him. I thought, how crazy is that? He said, I remember 
as a younger man, I was in this store, I was, I was on business, and there was, when there was the magazine rack and all that kind of stuff, and I'm out of town, I'm away from everybody, and I'm looking at this magazine rack thinking, oh. And when he's looking at that magazine rack, in came his mind, his best friend. And he thought, I don't wanna disappoint my best friend. And he didn't. We need community. Like the video we showed, really important for us. We need community. We need community. So he had this guy, Abby, come with me. And then, and then it says he inquired or he prayed. He prayed, God, what should I do here? If you've heard my new covenant Christianity, that's exactly what I get, where I get it from. Stop, pray, and do what you most want to do. As new covenant people, that's how we have self-control. David does this, and this from this point on is really the mark of David's life, how he controls himself. Instead of the rash, kind of violent thing he was in chapter 25, what marks him from this point forward is this incredible kind of, I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna think deeply, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna strengthen myself in the Lord, and then, then I'm gonna make some decisions, okay? I'll show you an example of it. Turn to chapter five of 2 Samuel. He's now become king, right? I think this, for, in the next Little section, he becomes king. Why? Because he gets this. Okay, David, now that you've got self-control, you're going to be successful. I can let you be king now. You've got it. Okay, so now he's king. Here's another stressful situation. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king, whenever you move forward, and the things of Jesus, you can expect an attack. He becomes king, what happens? The Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. So here's battle. Here it is, he's just been made king. Here's this big battle. Is this a stress trigger? Oh, 100%. So what does David do? Now the Philistines, verse 18, had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of Yahweh, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And Yahweh said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. This mark now. Stress, uh-oh, battle, uh-oh, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna pray. Right, now, this is what I really love, verse 22. So he defeats them, verse 22. And the Philistines came up yet again, and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Seems exactly the same, right? So David should just do the same thing again. But he doesn't. Guess what he does? He stops and he prays. And when David inquired of Yahweh, Yahweh said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them in the opposite of the balsam trees. No, no this time, different plan. He would have never known that if he didn't go, and if he didn't pray. I love this. This is the mark of David as king. I'm gonna strengthen myself in the Lord. When stress hits me, I'm gonna do these things. I'm gonna sing. I'm gonna read. I'm, that's what I'm gonna do. And here's what I love. I love when social science starts to say, you know what? We're finding the same things. So I, in my research of this, here's what the social sciences are finding about self-control. They're finding it's like a muscle. Self-control is almost identical to a muscle, all right? So a muscle, here's what happens with a muscle. Number one, 
it gets depleted and it requires recovery. So if you've ever run like wind sprints or something or run a marathon and then going home, you try to climb up the stairs, what happens? You pass out, right? Because your muscles are just, they're depleted, they're done. Well, there's almost the exact same thing that takes place with our self-control. That throughout the day, in the morning, you have the biggest bucket of self-control. And then as the day goes on, there's almost a linear decrease of your self-control. That's why so much nasty stuff happens at night. And you better be aware of that. If we're going to be really knowing how to be self-controlled kind of people, then you got to start realizing, I have the most self-control in the morning and I have the absolute least at night. And there's other things. I'll be real honest with you, ladies, because this same study said this. Um, your pre or your menstrual cycle, it affects your self-control, okay? So your normal ability to have common sense and um, resistance to certain things, during that time, your body is spending so much energy that you get depleted. And so you just gotta know that. That's why during that time, you're like, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. That's where you're gonna fail, right? And you're going to scream for some other things as well. That's just going to happen to you. That's why if you work a really stressful job and, and you come home and it's been a really stressful day, you are very thin with your kids, right? Because guess what? You're tapped out. Your self-control bucket is on empty. That's why every study says this today. You start your day with the hardest things because you have the highest self-control. It's Proverbs 6, by the way where Solomon is talking to his son and says, buddy, you got a really, really hard thing to do. Don't haste, do it right now. Don't sleep, don't stop, go now. Because your self-control is the highest in the morning. That's the bad news. That, that throughout the day, you just know, you better know this, you get depleted, you get depleted, you get depleted. So you plan your day according to that. But here's the good news. Like a muscle, it can develop. They're finding that people that exercise self-control and say no to stuff, what happens is daily, they actually get stronger in their ability to say no to stuff. Like David, David's moved. You see this progression where he stops being so rash and crazy and violent and starts to become more controlled, okay? So it develops. And then lastly, during the day, you can speed up recovery. So here's, here's what they're finding. And I found this really interesting. Like um, if you exercise really really, really, really hard, you can go take an ice bath and the ice bath actually helps your muscles release some of the poisons and toxins and they recover quicker. Well, the same thing about self-control. There are things that you can do during your day that actually bump back up your self-control. One of them is physical. The other ones are spiritual. So here's the physical one. Your brain is a glucose fire. It means this, it just burns through energy. And so the old saying is right. A hungry man is an, anybody know it? Angry man, which is true. David just about flipped his lid in 1 Samuel 25. Why? He was hungry. All right. So, so he was put on edge by his hunger. If you want to replenish some of that self-control, more and more social science is saying, just eat something healthy eat something healthy. And the study I, I, I read that I found fascinating on this, it was on parole judges. So a parole judge is the judge that sits there and guys that were supposed to serve 10 years come up, they've only served five years or eight years or 10 years or whatever, and they're looking to get their sentence reduced. 
And it's very stressful for that judge because if the judge says, hey, buddy, you can go, and then he goes out and commits a crime, whose name is on the line? That judge, right? So it takes a lot of horsepower, a lot of self-control. The easiest thing for a parole judge to say is, guess what? No, no, do your whole time, all right? So here's what they did. They did this study, and they, they looked at a ton of this data from parole judges, and they found something that's fascinating. If you take the exact same case, exact same judge, and you give him that case right before lunch when he's hungry, there's only a 15% chance that guy will be paroled. Take that same case, give it to him right after lunch, right after In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> Guess what? 65% chance that they'll be paroled. How amazing is that? Why? Because he's bad. That, that, that self-control, that really I can concentrate, I can think this through, it's back up once again. So now lawyers are coming and just handing out snicker bars. Like, here you go, bud. Why? I love you. I just want you to eat it. Eat it first. Eat it. Okay, let's talk. What that means is this. If you know there's a really stressful thing coming up for you, guess what you should do before you go there? Grab a snack. Grab a snack. Just eat something. Eat some healthy food, and it can help your brain have the kind of empathy and encouragement and stuff there. Okay, that's a physical one. And then there, I love social science when it starts dabbling into the spiritual stuff because they're always like, well, this seems to work. We don't know why, but it seems to work. So the first thing is meditation. Meditation. Grab your Bible, read a Psalm. Grab your Bible, read a proverb. Even more than that, remember the gospel. There, there's these bumps throughout people's lives where almost every single person has this massive increase in self-control. And almost every bump in self-control in a person's life is grouped around a change in identity. I'll give you an example. A man gets married and his new identity is husband. All of a sudden he has more self-control and he starts to work harder or do some things a lot better. A woman gets married, she becomes a wife. All of a sudden there's this bump Okay, you give birth to a child. Your identity's changed from just husband or wife now to mom, now to dad. There's this massive bump in self-control. That change in identity gives you a massive bump. When Jesus brought you into his family, you had the greatest change in identity ever. You are now a child of the king of the universe. Never stop going back to the well of your gospel identity. This is what I am. David did that. He would meditate and he'd be like this. God, you took me from the sheepfolds. I was the lowest job. I was the garbage collector, whatever it is. I was the lowest job. And you took me from the sheepfolds and you've made me king. Every single one of us can say that. Jesus, you took me from, from my sinful state and you're making me into a king or a queen. And then another one is prayer. I love social sciences on prayer. They're like, yeah, prayer just helps people. We don't know why. You should pray, but we don't know why. Just pray. <laughs> it's so funny reading them. I know why. Prayer connects you to the source of power. It's through prayer that I know I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. That whatever this is in front of me, 
It's not here to kill me or destroy me or damage me. It's here as part of the recipe to create in me kingness, queenness, so that I can have the metal and quality to walk with Jesus and rule and reign for eternity. That's what prayer does. It's massive. It's awesome. And then thirdly, community, right? The Abiathars, come with me, join with me. People that have the same kind of self-control, moral, moral compass as you, you get around them, they encourage you, they empathize with you, they help you. Like those are, those are like social science. E- eat good food, pretty simple. M- meditate, pray, and be around other people that are godly and controlled. Isn't that awesome? You wanna be self-controlled? That's what you do. Realizing throughout the day, I'm gonna be depleted. Throughout the day, this thing's gonna start grinding me down. And so I've got to be taking some time throughout the day, knowing stress is coming up and meditating or praying or eating a healthy snack because this is coming. And when I get home from work at night, I've gotta know I'm thin now. I'm thin. So I gotta be prepared for what's gonna come at me. It's real important. And then the last stage in David's life is a warning because he does super good. He seems to have it. But then we get this massive failure. This is the hazard stage. Turn with me and I'll be quick. 2 Samuel 11. Here's the recipe to crash and burn. Here's the warning. If you want to know how to fail, David gives us the perfect way to fail. Okay, look at this. 2 Samuel 11. I'll read the whole thing, then we'll talk. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. What time is it? The time when kings go to battle. David sent Joab. Is Joab a king? Mm-mm. And his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. I just love that. <laughs> his couch. What do you do on a couch? You nap, or you're a idiot, something like that. So he arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and that he saw the roof, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, "Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite?" So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Crash and burn. Why does he crash and burn? Three reasons. Number one, engine failure. Verse one, this is the time that kings go to battle. What was David? A king. What didn't David do? Go to battle. He had engine failure. He stopped doing what he was supposed to be doing as a king. He stopped doing what he knew he was to be about. Instead of battling, he's bathing. And it's crash and burn. Super dangerous. Galatians 6, 9 says this. Do not grow weary in well-doing, because if we faint not, we shall reap. There are things that you just know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Don't stop. You just keep doing it. I know I need to be 
in Scripture. I know I need to be in a community of people that are heading the same direction. I know I need to be fill in the blank. Don't stop doing it. When you have engine failure, you are destined to crash and burn. Number two, I call it pilot error. Look at verse three. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Who is that woman? That's pilot error. Here's why. Deuteronomy 17 says this about kings. They were not to multiply wives, not to have a big harem. All right? David did not need another queen. He did not need to ask any questions about Bathsheba. He had all the queens that he needed. He's meddling in an area he should not be meddling in. He did not need to ask about her. He didn't need to think about her. He didn't need to entertain those thoughts, and he does. It's pilot error. We live in an age where you can meddle in stuff you should not meddle in. And people do it all the time. And that pilot error, they just nosedive from it. You don't need to find out about what that stuff is about. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to inquire about it. You don't need to talk about it. You don't need to do any of that because all you are doing is shoveling coal into a locomotive and it's gonna run through your home. You don't ask questions. You don't inquire about junk. But it's so hard. No, it's not. You're not doing it about meth, right? Man, I want to be like to be a meth addict. I'm gonna really research that and find out. No. All the other stuff is just the same. Don't meddle in stuff you shouldn't meddle in. Philippians 4.8 just puts it like this. Think about these things. If it's true, if it's noble, if it's worthy, if it's praiseworthy, if there be any virtue, that's what you set your mind on. Pilot error, number two. And then thirdly, he ignored the warnings. One of his servants says to him what? That's Bathsheba, the wife, the wife, of Uriah the Hittite. That's a warning. Buddy, that's somebody else's wife. Stay away from her. And he ignores the warning of the community that's around him trying to protect him. There's how you crash and burn. There's it. Engine failure. Quit doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. Number two, inquiring in junk that you should not be inquiring in. And number three, not listening to the warning of the community that God has put around you or the God spirit within you. You know what? I talk to people that fail all the time. And I always ask them, did you know what you're getting into? Yeah, I kind of did. God's spirit is so faithful to start warning us. Look out, beep, beep, beep. You ignore that warning, look out, crash and burn. Well, Matt, that's me. I'm David. What do I do? I want you to notice how God responds to sinful David. Flip over. I'm really quick. I knew this was going to be a long one. Listen to, David gets confronted in his sin by Nathan the prophet. There's a whole scenario. You can read it. It's brilliant, but I'll pick it up in verse 13. So he's confronted. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. Confession. Number one. And Nathan said to David, and Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, and you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born shall die. Nathan went to his house. There's repercussions for sin. But God's response, guess what it is? It's so much grace. So much grace. You're not gonna die. Instead, instead, 
I'm gonna give you grace. God responds to the sinner David with grace. He confesses and then he gets God's grace. I love that. And you know what? David never commits adultery again. This doesn't become a pattern in his life where he's just like a serial adulterer. It's one time he confesses, God's grace cleanses him and he's changed. Let me give you one final New Testament text. It's a chapter and verse every believer should memorize that loves the gospel. It's Titus chapter two, verses 11 and 12. Listen to this, huge. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared. What has appeared? The grace of God bringing salvation to all people, love all, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What trains us? The grace of God. What trains us? The grace of God. What trained David? the grace of God. It's that stronger love, that stronger delight. It's the grace of God. So we're gonna come to the table here in a second. There's, there's no better demonstration of God's grace to you than the table prepared right here. That because of his brokenness, we're made whole. Because of him becoming poor, we're made rich. All that is the gospel. So you come to this table, maybe this morning you need, like David, to confess. I have been out of control. You confess that. And then you eat and drink grace and strength. And so Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you how it is training me to be a man of self-control. And yes, I have David moments of hope and hazard. And yet your grace continues to be so strong. And I pray for each of us in here this morning, Lord. I pray that your grace would train us. That we would be self-controlled. Yes, learning about ourselves. Yes, knowing weaknesses. Yes, protecting ourselves. But always coming back to the well of the gospel, of our identity as your kids, as those plucked from the fire, taken from the sheepfolds to become kings and queens for you forever. Thank you for your grace. May it train us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.